In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Please be seated. Our work today is to talk about work, about the right to work or the privilege of working, however you see it. Which is it? That depends on how you see things. How you see things depends on how you were brought up, what sort of worldview you have inherited or fashioned for yourself. Last few days have caused me to think a little bit about how I grew up and what sort of worldview I developed. And I'll spend a few moments on that, if you'll forgive me. I grew up in Vancouver, as you know, in the 50s and 60s. My family were of moderate means. My father worked as a special assistant to the executives of a corporation. And many of my parents' circle of family and friends were men who had done better than him. They had either started from nothing and made something of it, something substantial, or who took something big and made it bigger. They were CEOs and vice presidents, successful men, although today's standards in which the gap between rich and poor grows ever greater, they were not ostentatiously so in terms of wealth, they were quietly so in terms of power and of influence. My father worked hard and worked loyally all his life for an organization known as the Chevron Corporation, SoCal, we called it at work, short for Standard Oil of California. The men my father joined each weekday morning for coffee at the corporate headquarters on the top floor of the Marine Building, and also in the evenings for a glass of scotch in the, timber, in the Vancouver Club, rather, would hearken back to the glory days of Standard Oil one big company, which became the gory days when the company that John D. Rockefeller birthed in Ohio in 1870 and nursed to robust health was declared to be an illegal monopoly. The U.S. Supreme Court smote it in pieces. This all had happened in 1911, if you please, but to those in this corporate club, it was as if it had happened yesterday. A classic case of the long arm of government going where it had the power but no right to reach. After all, at least when my father was younger, this was the mantra. What was good for Standard Oil was good for America, and what was good for America was good for Canada. And that's where it stayed. So my father sought to instill in us a deep distrust of a government which gives and takes with an icy cold hand. This perspective has somewhat persisted, though I can also see the point of view of the Supreme Court from time to time. What we also incorporated, my brothers and sisters and cousins and I on our own, although we did not know it, was a deep sense of privilege. Now, none of us were not outwardly very affluent. It was a different culture in those days. And privilege meant not flashy things conspicuously consumed. No, it was not about leisure, not about play, about the kinds and the number of the toys one had. Privilege was about work. And if you did your work and did it well, we were told, whatever the door of opportunity you sought to open, it would be opened for you. We were taught that there was no door that by rights would not open for us. 
And if we encountered a door that got stuck, there were ways of dealing with that. What you wanted was yours if you worked for it, anything. Nothing was beyond your reach. And also, now here's the other side, if you failed to get what you reached for, all things being equal, you had only yourself to blame. Of course, all things are never equal. I had no idea until somewhat later in my life how many there were in this world who did not expect so much as I took for granted, who did not believe the doors of opportunity opened for them, and therefore saw these doors at best as windows, at worst as walls, inaccessible, inoperable, and invisible. Seen through a glass darkly or through a glass, dark glass ceiling, if you will, and a whole world above them, out of reach and out of sight. When I looked down upon that world through that ceiling, it never occurred to me that those in the shadows below the so-called underprivileged, a very good word, I thought, were not there simply as a matter of choice. They chose not to work, and they got the consequence. Simple as that. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat, Jesus said. For we hear that some among you, rather, St. Paul says, but in the name of Jesus, we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work. Now, such persons we commend and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly, know your place, and to earn their own living. Now, what's wrong with this picture? Worked very well for Standard Oil. Only this, it doesn't include the possibility that there are those in this world who want to work but are not able or who may be able but are denied. The doors are closed and the locks are, sh are set against them. Now we've entered the realm of politics now. I'm only going to tread gently here. But politics, remember, is the art of bringing people together into agreement so that they can build together. Right now, we are experiencing disagreement in every sphere of human and superhuman activity, discord. And when discord is intolerable and concord seems impossible, then the tensions are released in battle. Feel the tensions in what Jesus says. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones, Jesus said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. How will this work of scattering that which was gathered be undertaken? I quote, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. And this disunity will reach back through the levels of community, finally disrupting the family itself. You will be delivered up, that is, to the authorities, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. Now, this is nothing to look forward to, although I do not know of a period of time in the history of the world when this has not been the case for Christians somewhere, and it is even now. 
But it is coming, says the Lord, as it has come again and again to God's people in travail. What sets the scenes for this explosion of antipathy? It is the antithesis of the family of community. It is not just the separation of people one from another by ceilings of glass and bars of steel. It is the segregation, the not just setting apart, but setting against one another that so easily escalates to the war of all against all. And it is the denial of hopes, of dreams, of possibilities, which creates the potential for that inequality, which creates the conditions in which electricity can flow and lightning bolts can flash from one point to the other. We have many systems that relate what you can expect, if you like, how equal the playing field is, and how limited or unlimited are the goods that you are seeking to achieve. How many doors there are? Is there a door for everyone? Do they all open? No doubt the view of John D. Rockefeller was that there were unlimited possibilities for wealth. You just had to make them. His interest in equal opportunity was not on record. The U.S. government, however, saw very much the view that there must be equal opportunity. Not always sure how unlimited the opportunities were, however. The biblical view, however, is like this, that wealth is limited. There's only so much to go around. If you have a lot, it is at the expense of someone else. You cut a big piece of pie, that's less for someone else. On the other hand, their assumption is they live in a world in which everyone has equal opportunity to have a piece of that pie. The biblical worldview, the one of the Old Testament, is all about justice. Even the alien in your midst is entitled to that piece of the pie. Society has changed a little bit, and biblical world's views have proven to be rather malleable in the hands of the church. We're now at a place where many, it seems, are not entitled to what society offers. And we've heard from many of them, and many of them have remained silent. A kind of liberal elite like myself imagined that I was always speaking for the little guy. But as John Cass said brilliantly, this last election has proven to us that if you ask the little guy himself to speak, he'll have something quite different to say than you imagine. We have heard from many these last few days, in other words, who saw their hopes and dreams dashed, and others who hope to see their dreams now realized. Even though the realization of dreams on either side often seem to turn into a nightmare for those on the other side. And none of this seems to matter right now in the incredibly charged atmosphere, which is the legacy of defeat and the inheritance of victory. But whether crossing the gaps of educational attainment, ethnicity, class, culture, or gender, crossing the gaps of privilege, if you like, 
These conflicts are all the same. They are based on work and the ability to work, an ability that is more possible for some and not so much for others. And the denial of that possibility will result in war and in the domestic iterations of the same, rebellion, riot, and insurrection. It's about privilege, too, then. The expectation, the hope that may motivate some to pursue their God-given aspirations and tell others to give it up before they even try. However this works out, and the church is placed right in the middle of this by the Lord Jesus, our task is to proclaim the kingdom of God in word and deed. It has been ever thus, and that has never changed. And whatever happens in the corridors of power or in the courts, nothing changes in this. Caesar is Caesar. Christ is Christ. And Christ, not Caesar, is Lord. And if our work is to make our country in some way look more like the kingdom, that work can only be done from the inside out. Legislate what you will. It does not change Hearts. And if we try to impose the cause of Christ on others from the top down, then the cause of evangelism is set back, not advanced, something to bear in mind. Our task, regardless, is to proclaim. And whether you see recent events as a victory as or a door as a defeat, nothing changes here. For laws can only condition our behavior, but the new way of living that Christ seeks and that only Christ offers grows from the inside out. It is the outward expression of a transformed heart, and the heart must be in it. These days, we've seen a lot of spleen and not so much heart. Spleen generates anger, and anger hardens the heart. And whenever people go into battle, they adopt a hard, hard mask. Some of them never lose it. And we must not forget, wherever we are, we are people of privilege. And of all the peoples on earth, our greatest privilege is this. Nothing that this beautiful nation can communicate to us, give to us, but that on our souls and in our hearts, we bear the marks of Christ and of him crucified, that we have died with Christ. And that alone makes us Christians, Christ's people, followers of Jesus. And we should look out soberly and look back soberly and reflect that the cause of Christ, the church, has never prospered because it was easy or convenient, because conditions were favorable. Jesus said, blessed are those who suffer persecution for righteousness sake. He does not say, blessed are those who persecute back. For righteousness sake, there's nowhere in the kingdom for that. Our problem may begin not just when persecution ends, but when we persecute others. And we will see that all of this is a distraction. The world remains the same. The church remains the same. The one constant thing about the world is change changeless change or perpetual shuffling of the deck chairs of the names of those in power. But it is our privilege to serve not a president in one year and out the next, although serve him we must, but a king who rules forever, a king like no other, 
who made this earth, set everything in motion, sent his son to gather his church and redeem what we could of his creation, and someday come, Lord Jesus, on that day, will return to set his throne and establish his just rule of mercy and peace. For that day, we have been elected. For that inauguration has already begun in our hearts, in our deeds, in our proclamation. And it is into such a world that we bring our children and that we as Christians bring them up. As we know, conceiving children is one thing, enculturating them is another. One requires surrender to the moment. The other requires commitment to the future. Today, in a few moments, we will see another young family bring their child and in an act of surrender and commitment, both an act of faith, state their hopes and their trust in the living God in the strongest possible terms, come what may, in the fabric of America. I do not know their political leanings, and it is not mine to ask. They are my brother and sister in Christ, and I have come to care for them far more quickly and far more deeply than I might have imagined. They bring their child here, a special child who may have his own needs, in the fiercely held, sure and certain, but gently articulated hope that his world will have fewer glass ceilings and fewer iron gates than the one we live in now. Jesus points to a dark night whose black clouds are the product of smoldering rage, but he also guarantees the dawn of a bright new day. For those in his kingdom to come, even now coming into view, no coming into being. And that day, if no other day, will see all barriers at last removed, all glass ceilings smashed that would inhibit the flow of God's love between all who inhabit his new creation and work to bring it into being. 